Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caprola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 17th through Saturday the 19th feature Riccardo Muti directing a program of Beethoven's Overture to the Ruins of Athens. Also on the program, the Beethoven Piano Concerto No. 4 with Mitsuko Uchida and after intermission, Philip Glass's Symphony No. 11. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4, a work lasting about 34 minutes. On December 7, 1808, a Viennese paper announced a concert to be given by Ludwig van Beethoven at the Theater an der Wien five days later. All the pieces are of his own composition, entirely new and not yet heard in public. Although Beethoven's publicist fudged that last detail ever so slightly, the list of world premieres lined up for one evening is astonishing. Both the Fifth and Sixth Symphonies the choral fantasy, and this work, Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto. Those who didn't like too much new and unfamiliar music at one sitting surely stayed home that night. To round out this substantial program, long even by the generous standards of the 19th century, were three movements from the Mass in C, the Concert Aria, a Perfido, and Improvisations at the Keyboard by the Composer. There we sat from 6.30 till 10.30, the composer J.F. Reichardt later recalled, in the most bitter cold and found by experience that one might have too much, even of a good thing. What should have been the greatest night of Beethoven's career was ruined by too much music and too little heat. The performances were no doubt wretched because rehearsals had gone badly. For one thing, Beethoven had so annoyed the members of the Theater an der Wien Orchestra the previous month that they now insisted that he sit in the anteroom whenever he wasn't needed at the keyboard and wait for the concertmaster to check with him between movements. Beethoven was so desperate to see this concert take place that he agreed. It promised him both wide exposure and a nice profit. Not surprisingly, there wasn't enough time for the orchestra to learn so much challenging new music. Reichardt remembered that it had been found impossible to get a single full rehearsal for all the pieces to be performed, every one of them filled with the greatest difficulties. The choral fantasy, which Beethoven composed at the very last moment, inexplicably thinking the concert lacked a blockbuster finish, was scarcely rehearsed at all. When it broke down completely during the performance, Beethoven started it over from the beginning, making a very long evening even longer. By all reports, Beethoven was a terrifically exciting pianist. He played with spectacular technical facility and tremendous emotional expression. According to his student, Ferdinand Ries, he cared less about missed notes than character and expression. Mistakes of the other kind, he said, were due to chance, but these last resulted from want of knowledge, feeling, or attention. When Beethoven first stepped out on stage the night of December 22, 1808, it was to play this concerto in G major, and surely most members of the audience were surprised that he went straight to the keyboard and started to play. Anyone who troubled to buy a ticket to this concert would have known that a concerto begins with a long orchestral exposition that gives you all the tunes before the soloist begins. But Beethoven had begun to examine every convention he inherited, to rethink every choice a composer could make. He realized that the only way to call greater attention to the soloist's first line was to do something unexpected. 
In his violin concerto, first performed several months before, he had made the wait almost interminable and then sneaked the violinist in so that if you weren't paying attention, you missed it altogether. And here he caught his audience completely off guard again by starting with the piano. It's a brilliant trick, so perfectly handled that it has hardly ever been imitated, and Beethoven quickly follows one master stroke with another. The orchestra enters six bars later in the unexpected key of B major. The most remarkable thing about this bold and original opening is the sustained quiet dynamics, beginning piano and then falling off to pianissimo, as if Beethoven were sharing confidences. A tone of moderation and nobility persists throughout the first movement, even in the most vigorous and brilliant passages. This, too, was unexpected. The movement is dominated throughout by a gentle version of the same four-note rhythm with which fate aggressively knocks on the door of the Fifth Symphony. The German theorist Heinrich Schenker, who always doubted that Beethoven had that image in mind when he wrote the symphony, wanted to know if the concerto depicted Another door on which fate knocked, or was someone else knocking at the same door? The slow movement has inspired many interpretations. Orpheus taming the Furies is the most familiar one, although Beethoven evidently was thinking of nothing more dramatic than the music itself when he wrote it. This is a conversation between the strings and the piano. The strings, playing in staccato octaves, begin assertively. The piano responds with rich, quiet chords, an answer that raises questions of its own. On it goes, back and forth, the piano steadfast, the strings gradually weakening. Sensing victory, the piano unleashes a brief, rhapsodic cadenza. Everyone finally plays together, sharing the same chords and the same rhythm. Over the last chord, the piano poses a brand new question to which Beethoven responds by launching into the finale without a pause. Our sense of boundaries is vague. In retrospect, the entire slow movement sounds like a long introduction to the finale. That's exactly the case in the Waldstein Sonata, written two years before. The finale itself doesn't behave like one at first. It's the only one in all of Beethoven's concertos that doesn't begin with the soloist stating the main theme, followed by rigorous confirmation from the full orchestra. Here, Beethoven opens softly with the strings in the wrong key. The piano takes the situation in hand with a brilliant virtuosic new theme, and the rest of the movement is swift and thrilling. The orchestral sound is enriched by the introduction of trumpets and drums, and the solo part effectively combines lyricism with bravura and elegance with wit. After the concert, Beethoven boasted that, in spite of the fact that various mistakes were made, which I could not prevent, the public nevertheless applauded the whole performance with enthusiasm. Reichardt particularly remembered the new pianoforte concerto of immense difficulty, which Beethoven executed astonishingly well in the most rapid tempos. There's no record of how much money Beethoven made that night. His days as a celebrity performer, however, were over. His hearing had recently gotten much worse, and it turned out that this was the last time he would appear in public as a soloist. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4. And now on to Philip Glass's Symphony No. 11. The work lasts about 40 minutes. 
Philip Husher writes, In the spring of 1977, I sat on the floor of a crowded gallery at the Museum of Contemporary Art in its original home on East Ontario to hear Philip Glass and his ensemble play portions of his first opera, Einstein on the Beach. Glass had recently emerged from the New York underground high on the success of Einstein, which he wrote between shifts as a Manhattan cab driver. The excerpts that night sounded like music from another planet, neon bright and alluring, its repetitive phrases stark and bracing, its harmonies all primary colors yet arranged so that they seemed new and fresh, and its vibrating rhythmic energy unlike anything outside rock. In Orchestra Hall, a mile south down Michigan Avenue, the Chicago Symphony was playing Beethoven and Schumann under Daniel Barenboim that week, and it was hard at the time to imagine a day when these two worlds would merge. Glass had first come to Chicago in 1952 at the age of 15, arriving on the night train from his home in Baltimore. The endless patterns of the wheels on the tracks that caught his ear were already laying the groundwork for a lifetime as a composer of a new kind of music. He had been accepted into an unusual University of Chicago program that allowed students to skip their last two years of high school and begin a university education in the big city. Glass was filled with the promise of a new life. Chicago was a real city that catered to intellectuals and people with serious cultural interest in a way that Baltimore couldn't, he wrote in his 2015 memoir, Words Without Music. It was also the place that introduced him to the Cotton Club on nearby Cottage Grove, the modern jazz room in the Loop, where you could hear Stan Getz, Chet Baker, and Lee Konitz, and to writers like Saul Bellow and Nelson Algren, who were using the vernacular of the street. He found his way to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra just as it was beginning to work with its new music director, Fritz Reiner, and it was playing at the peak of its powers. Glass, who had regularly attended concerts given by the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra since his childhood, now hopped the Illinois Central train from Hyde Park to Orchestra Hall on Friday afternoon to buy a cheap student ticket to the Chicago Symphony's matinee programs. He quickly saw what Reiner was up to behind his famously microscopic beat. Those tiny movements forced the players to peer at him intently, and then he would suddenly raise his arms up over his head, and the entire orchestra would go crazy. Glass was struck by Reiner's mastery of music by his countrymen Bartok and Kodai, but he must also have heard many of the great classics of the orchestral repertoire in his Friday outings, including the symphonies that often anchored Reiner's programs. It is a leap in time and idea to Glass's own symphonic output. First came the early triumphs of the Philip Glass Ensemble, and for some two decades, beginning in the late 1960s, this small circle of performers remained the recipient of his newest scores. The high point, arguably, is the four-hour-long music in 12 parts, the works that first pegged him as a minimalist and linked his name forever with endlessly churning arpeggios and pulsing rhythms. These were radical pieces, Glass said much later. There was a grunginess to them that came out of the technology that was available at the time. The electric pianos and the big oversized boombox speakers. The pieces were loud, and they were fast, and they didn't stop. And then came the big, luxuriously scaled operas, particularly the triptych doled out over a decade. Einstein on the Beach... Sajat Raha, which Lyric Opera presented in 1987, one of the first American opera houses to stage a glass opera, and Akhenaten. 
and increasingly there were film scores, beginning with Gottfriedio's landmark Koyaneskatsi of 1982, in which Glass's music played a role as important as the visuals. Koyaneskatsi is among the Glass-scored films that the Gene Siskel Film Center is presenting this week to coincide with these concerts. But by the early 1980s, there were signs that glass was being drawn back to traditional instrumental forms. First came two string quartets, one after another, the second based on his music for Paul Schrader's film Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, then a violin concerto, and even a cadenza for Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 24. Glass has said that he identifies as a classicist, although his take on classicism is so individual it might be called glassicism. It is a disposition that goes back to his boyhood. When he worked in his father's music store, he began listening to Bach's suites for unaccompanied cello. He has recently composed two partitas for solo cello. When he studied harmony and counterpoint with the formidable Nadia Boulanger in the mid-1960s, scores by Bach, Mozart, and Schubert, whom he once called his favorite composer, they share a birthday, reigned supreme in her Paris studio. Glass did not compose his first symphony until 1992, and then, as if a new world had opened up to him, he wrote seven more over the next dozen years. During the same period, he wrote his first concertos for piano, harpsichord, and cello. He continued to work on film, including two scores for Martin Scorsese's Condon and Stephen Daldry's The Hours, both nominated for Academy Awards, that brought him a wider popularity and established him as the most instantly identifiable voice in contemporary music, at the same time offering a new, now much-imitated model for the Hollywood soundtrack. Glass was 54 years old when he began his first symphony, a later starter than even Brahms, who famously kept the music world waiting for his first symphony until he was 43. These were clearly symphonies of Glass's own brand. The first, Low, and fourth, Heroes, are based on recordings by David Bowie and Brian Eno. Numbers 5, 6, and 7 are driven by texts ancient, classical, and aboriginal writings, poetry by Allen Ginsberg, a Native American song. And they cover a lot of territory. The third is scored for just 19 strings. The fourth was choreographed by Twyla Tharp. The fifth is a monumental oratorio. But they are unmistakably symphonic, in a way that is hard to pin down, carrying the grandeur and weight of passages in Sajaraha into the orchestral realm. The symphonies Glass has composed since 2010, and there are seven of them, have been largely instrumental, beginning with Symphony No. 9, which was first performed at the Bruckneuhaus Linz in Austria and given its first U.S. performance in Carnegie Hall on Glass's 75th birthday. The post-Beethoven superstition with writing nine symphonies that terrified Mahler so much he fudged by calling his ninth Das Lied von der Erde also bothered Glass, and so he had a tenth in the works before the ninth was premiered. The old instrumental forms continue to hold a fascination for Glass. He has written 20 piano etudes, nine string quartets. The ninth, given its premiere just last month, is based on the music he wrote for the 2019 New York stage production of Shakespeare's King Lear with Glenda Jackson in the title role, and three piano concertos, the third with a hauntingly beautiful final movement dedicated to Estonian composer and fellow minimalist Arvo Pert was premiered in 2018. 
There is now even a piano sonata in three movements, one of the most tradition-bound of forms that moves Glass's language in yet new directions. It turns out that the piano is the best place to work out these kinds of things, he said at the time. It works that way sometimes for composers. That's the case with Berg's piano sonata, referring to his favorite of the second Viennese school of composers, Alban Berg, whose landmark sonata predates Glass's by more than a century. Glass has also compared his sonata to Haydn's grand E-flat major sonata, composed late in his career when he was done writing symphonies. Except that Glass has since written three more symphonies. The 13th will have its premiere next month. The 14th has already been premiered in London in the fall, and they were completed in reverse order, and he is now putting the finishing touches on a 15th, written for the Kennedy Center, to be played later this year. American orchestras have been slow to embrace Glass's symphonies. The New York Philharmonic, his hometown band, has yet to program one, although it played his two-piano concerto in 2017. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra is performing a Glass symphony for the first time this week. The orchestra played his facades in 1999, and this marks Ricardo Moody's first exploration of Glass's musical world. Glass was so long ago stereotyped by the simple primal force of the repetitive patterns in his music that he is still called a minimalist, a term he long ago disavowed. His musical language has grown markedly lusher and more nuanced over the years, deepening in rhythmic complexity and harmonic richness in the pace with which its patterns unfold and change, and in the subtlety of the patterns themselves. The distance traveled between the first of his popular piano etudes composed in 1991 and the 20th, written 20 years later, is immense, from blinding daylight to the depths of shadowy dusk. Yet it is all pure glass. Many of his more recent scores, such as the third piano concerto and these last few symphonies, go even further with what Glass has simply called new adventures in harmony and structure, I haven't looked back that much, he told the New York Times in 2019. I've just kept going. Glass is now 85 years old. He observed his birthday two weeks ago at an outdoor celebration at Rockefeller Center Skating Rink. Five years earlier, he sat in Carnegie Hall on his 80th birthday, listening to the world premiere of his Symphony No. 11, the work that is performed this week under Moody, who turned 80 in July. Like most composers, Glass told the New York Times shortly before the premiere, I'm working with an evolving language. This symphony marks something of a departure from other recent work. I've returned to earlier ideas of repetition which I thought I had abandoned, and now I have rediscovered. They have a different effect than they had when I was doing it in this semi-hypnotic style of repetitions slowly shifting over time. This is somewhat different. I'm taking little repetitions and making them into structural gestures. In three spacious movements, Symphony No. 11 is a grand work, and it is part of a grand tradition. When he was a student at the University of Chicago, Glass and his friends, one was the future astronomer Carl Sagan, they used to get together just to listen to recordings. They were drawn to the vast symphonies by Bruckner and Mahler. It was a very big canvas that they had painted on in terms of time. Bruckner's symphonies in particularly impressed him with their epic majesty, huge granite objects, but in music. Years later, he realized that the sound of these scores had gotten lodged in his psyche. I had taken them whole, and they had remained in my memory.
That kinship still sometimes surfaces in Glass's music, particularly in the symphonies. Symphony number no. 11 is built of great blocks of material, huge granite objects lined up cheek by jowl like the vessels of a painting by Giorgio Morandi, varied, repeated, ordered, and juxtaposed in masterful fashion. The first movement begins simply, quietly outlining chords in the harps, piano, and pizzicato cello and then, as it adds one by one, low brass, whirling woodwind patterns, rippling string triplets, and a new melody opening high in the winds, horns, and trumpets, it builds to a climax of dizzying grandeur. It thrives on that hallmark glass dichotomy of bristling activity and gradual steady pacing. The slow movement unfolds a broad melody and then builds in energy and complexity before it unwinds in an epilogue of delicate beauty, ending in the depths of pure A minor. I belong to the generation of people who have returned to the idea of tonal music, Glass has said. It's often a complex tonality. It's not simply someone banging on the piano in C major. The third movement, a wild and raucous finale, opens with a barrage 20 measures long scored for nothing but solo percussion, drums, triangle, cymbals, tambourine, anvil, shaker, tom-tom, and woodblock. As a student, Glass studied flute and percussion. Like any kid, I wanted to play the drums. I have a very strong connection to percussion writing, and that comes forward in this symphony more than in any of the other ones. He says that the opening of the finale feels to him like a confession. I really like this kind of music. When Glass began to write his first symphonies, he realized he had found a new subject. After years of writing for theater and opera, it was a real jolt for me to drop all of the extra musical content and make the language of music and the structure unfolding in time the sole content. Although he is still perhaps best known for writing operas about Albert Einstein, Mahatma Gandhi, and the Pharaoh Akhenaten, men who changed the world through the strength of their ideas, Glass says this symphony is not concerned with any of that. It's just about music. Program notes by Philip Husher on Philip Glass's Symphony Number no. 11. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.